Matthew 6-9 is what his focus is going to be, page 811 on the House Bible in front of you. So if y'all want to turn to page 811, we are going to read this together. We're going to read 6 verses 9 through 13, so if y'all would stand. And again, we are going to read the whole thing together. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Aaron, if you want to come on up, we will pray for you. God, we thank you so much for Aaron. We thank you for his heart, the way you gifted him, the way you have just put together the character that he has to honor you, to lead others to you. God, we thank you that we can approach you in prayer, that you guide us in how to pray and how to approach you. And we can do all that through Christ, our Savior, our Redeemer. God, we thank you for those that are worshiping with us in our city and for those that are in Bloomington, Indiana, and all around the globe. God, we thank you for Christ. In his name, amen. Well, thank you, Amy. I appreciate that. Good morning. It's good to see you guys. <laughs> um, let's be honest. Intros can be hard sometimes. I know there's a lot of different writers here this morning, uh, and a lot of different kinds of writers even at that. High schoolers, college students, I know you guys just passed the midway point in your semester, so you probably just finished some kind of long writing assignment or midterm paper. Uh, we've got journalists, we've got other media professionals in here who work a lot to write articles, um, segments on the radio or television, so that the wider community can, can read those and be informed. Some of y'all have personal blogs, social media feeds that are going to be read by family, friends, all your followers. Some of you are artistic, creative writers, putting together poems and lyrics and music. Over the years, Carlos has made it a point to train up and have a kind of a broad preaching team. So I know a lot of guys in here have probably written a sermon at some point. Hopefully a sermon intro referencing sermon intros isn't too disorienting for you this morning. But no matter what you write, introductions can be hard. Writers are taught, okay, you've really got to hook your audience fast. Start off with a step, a quote, a bold claim that leaves people wanting, you know, needing to hear the rest of what you've got to say. It's a decent amount of pressure. I mean, you've already spent so much time on the body, the meat of what you actually want people to hear and know and understand and apply to their lives. Now you're responsible for setting up some rhetorical snare to quickly captivate your audience. I mean, good grief. You already turned into the station, downloaded the article, sat down in the pew. But it's easy to feel that kind of initial pressure. Conceptually, communication can seem kind of simple, but it's easy to get overwhelmed. 
especially right at the beginning. You know, no one likes to kind of trip over those first few words, feel like they made themselves look dumb in front of someone. Sadly, though, those introductions, those tough introductions, often keep us from trying to communicate at all. And if we're being honest, doesn't it sometimes feel like that when we sit down and pray? Again, conceptually, praying to God is as simple as having a conversation with someone that you're in a close relationship with. And at the same time, it's as weighty as sitting down, approaching the being who created and sustains literally everything that exists and who has ultimate authority over us. Where do I start? I don't know what I want to say. I don't want to say something stupid and feel foolish in front of God. I don't want to say something pretentious and be arrogant before God. What kind of attitude am I supposed to have? What am I supposed to think about or say? What if something goes horribly wrong? And those are just the thoughts that we can have when we're praying by ourselves, let alone praying with or in front of someone else, leading your family or your MC or your whole church in prayer. So rather than risk praying the wrong thing and embarrassing ourselves, we just don't pray at all. If that's you this morning, I want you to know that you're not the only one who feels like that. I've felt that before many times in my life. I still feel it in different seasons of life. Your brothers and sisters sitting beside you, they have felt that or they will feel that at some point. Even Jesus' own disciples felt that, which is why he makes this aside in his most famous sermon to teach his followers how to pray. When we don't know where to begin, Jesus shows us the way. So as we look at this first verse of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus is going to show us not just how to pray, but where to begin in prayer. Jesus is going to tell us here that when we pray, we must begin by having God's character, His holiness, His sovereignty, and His fatherhood in mind. So let's dive into our verse. We'll take a couple steps back, talk about the context for this prayer, since we've been out of our Matthew series for the past several weeks. And uh, since it's Halloween weekend, I decided we're actually going to Tarantino this verse. We're going to start at the back and then work our way to the beginning. Because I think what Jesus starts with is actually the final and most important thing that I want us to leave meditating on today. Got that? Okay, let's dive in. So our Sermon on the Mount context. When we last left our hero, he was delivering corrections and clarifications concerning genuine worship. Jesus discusses three areas of worship. Giving to the poor, fasting, and prayer. All of these, he starts off with, you know, the hypocrites love to give in these showy ways. They love to fast in these dramatic ways. They love to pray in front of everyone so that everyone knows how devout they are. And then the correction. But when you give, when you fast, when you pray, here's how you're going to do it. In verses 5 and 6, we read this. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. 
But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Darren preached several weeks ago this passage. He said the hypocrites love to make sure that they are right smack dab in the middle of town in front of a large group of people when it's time for afternoon prayer. They might show off with their fancy religious language and almost certainly would belittle less religious people around them. Jesus gives us an example of that later in another gospel narrative. So Jesus tells his disciples, he says, if you're praying to get attention from others, congratulations. You got it. But that's all you're going to get. Rather, when you pray, you should go into a private place where your prayers are focused and directed towards God alone. Prayer is not performative. It's personal. But the hypocrites aren't the only correction Jesus has this time. There's another group of people who pray in another kind of way that takes the focus away from genuine devotion to God. Jesus says that the Gentiles, the non-Jewish pagans, they pray prayers that are really just an attempt to manipulate God, manipulate their gods. He prays, or he explains to us in verses 7 and 8, he says, When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Again, just to quickly recap, the Gentiles, they like to pray these long-winded, repetitive, sometimes even nonsensical types of prayers. Think back to that classic Bible story of Elijah versus the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18. All the, the crazy stuff that the pagan prophets were doing. The prayers weren't prayed out of a sense of devotion, but rather manipulation. After all, those pagan pantheons, they were a pack of pernicious deities. They would make your life miserable if you couldn't get on their good side. Jesus corrects them. He says, hey, there's no need for that. Your God is a good father. He knows what you need even before you approach him. So in opposition to the hypocrites and the Gentiles, Jesus shows his followers how to pray a genuine prayer. The first part of our verse, pray then like this. Pray like this. There's some debate as to whether Jesus intends this prayer to be uh, you know, a recited prayer verbatim, or if it's more of just a template for other prayers that we might pray. There's actually strong evidence that this is uh, intended to be a recited prayer for God's people. I know as kind of low church, Western Christians, we can be easily tempted to over-individualize our spirituality, neglecting that historic witness of God's people through God's word. It can be uncomfortable sometimes for us to pray pre-written prayers because it might feel a little impersonal. But this was a common practice for Jesus and his disciples. They prayed the Psalms together regularly, something that we want to make a habit of here at Cars. Throughout church history, including our own Reformed tradition, we have written and recited prayers that have been a part of our story. We have the Anglicans with the Book of Common Prayer, the Puritans with the Valley of Vision. These are historic prayers of the church. Martin Luther himself said that Christians ought to pray the Lord's Prayer a few times a day. 
So absolutely, Jesus here is giving us a specific prayer to pray. And at the same time, this was not the only prayer that Jesus prayed. It's not the only prayer that we read in the rest of the New Testament. It's not the only prayer in the rest of the uh, whole Bible. So as much as the Lord's Prayer is a specific prayer that we should recite, it can also serve as a template to guide us in our own prayer lives. So with the rest of our morning, I want to do a deep dive into that first phrase of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in Heaven, hallowed be your name. Diving deep here, it'll help us as we both recite the prayer and as we're guided in our own prayers. So first off, when we pray, we must see God's character as critical. Remember, we started at the end, we're going to work our way back to the beginning. Jesus says, pray like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. God's name. When the Bible speaks about God's name, it's speaking of his character. The classic passage is Exodus 34. Now, I know that there are at least two sermons in the Karis Sermon Archive on this passage, so I won't dive too deeply, but let's look at these verses together. In this passage, it's right after the golden calf incident, um, and Moses tells God that he wants to take their relationship to the next level. He tells God, look, I know your name. You told me your name, Yahweh. I am who I am, but now I want to see your glory. Moses doesn't quite know what he's asking for because God responds, look, you can't just see my glory and expect to come out alive on the other side. I'm too holy to handle. I'll tell you what, though. Come back up the mountain. I will tell you the meaning of my name. I'll reveal my name to you. His character. That's where we find ourselves in verse 5 there on the screen. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord. Remember, when we see lowercase O-R-D, that's a stand-in for God's personal name. Yahweh, Yahweh. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So what is the character of our God like? This God that we pray to, what is he like? You ask him, he starts by telling you he's merciful and gracious. He's the kind of God who will endure with and bear with his people despite our failings. He's an undeserved second chance giving God. He goes on. He says he's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Friends, he is a God who will always keep his promises. He won't abandon his people. He'll make his presence available to us. Keeping that love for thousands of generations. Bearing with us in our sin, yet not simply overlooking sin. He's a God of justice and righteousness. He won't let the guilty go unpunished. He won't let wicked people continue to deface his world and harm the people that he's made and loves. He's the God we can go to with our hurts and our pains and the injustices that we experience. We have to remember God's character when we pray because seeing his heart 
like we do here in these verses, it gives us a sobering reassurance as to why we can trust Him, hope in Him, and communicate with Him. God's character is crucial to our prayers. Next, when we pray, we also have to begin by highlighting God's holiness. So Jesus teaches us to pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We don't really use that word hallowed anymore. That's okay. For something to be hallowed is for it to be made or kept holy and honored. So when we pray to God that God's name be hallowed, we're praying that His holiness will be magnified, that it be made much of. When we talk about God's holiness, we're talking about His utter uniqueness and moral perfection. His utter uniqueness and moral perfection. It's one of the most central attributes, and it's declared constantly in heaven, as we see both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Follow me uh, quickly to a couple of passages, one of the old, one of the new. Isaiah 6 and Revelation 4, we'll see this first in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. We fast forward to the end of the Bible story. We, read, we see the exact same thing in Revelation 4. The four living creatures, each of them with six wings, full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Since the very beginning of creation and into all eternity, God's creatures sing a declaration of His holiness. Here's something fun, though, that I learned the past couple weeks while I've been studying this passage. All of the Lord's Prayer is a petitionary prayer. That is, the whole prayer is asking God to do stuff. Asking God to act. A petitionary prayer would be just one type of prayer in contrast maybe to a prayer of praise, a prayer of thankfulness, or an intercessory prayer, which is when we pray for other people, pray on behalf of other people. When Jesus begins to teach his disciples this prayer, it's in contrast to the way that Gentiles pray, trying to manipulate God cajole him into doing, uh, serving their selfish interests. Jesus says they don't need to do that. Disciples, you don't need to do that. Because God already knows what you need. It's pretty easy to see throughout this prayer the things that we need, the things that we ask for. I don't want to get too far ahead, uh, but later on, you know, we'll see Jesus ask for God to act in a variety of ways. God, bring your kingdom to earth. God, give us daily bread. God, forgive our sins. God, lead us away from temptation. What about in our passage? It's a little bit obscure. But to say, hallowed be your name, it's more than just saying, hey God, we're going to hallow your name. It's a petition that God would hallow his own name. 
We say, God, would you act in such a way that your glory and your honor are made known around the globe? God, reveal your goodness and grace in our world in a way that cannot be denied. God, while we honor you with our lives, honor yourself in the midst of our community. It's a prayer that God would act, even as much as we should always also act to honor God. Here's our actionable for today. Here's something you can do. And this comes both as a culmination of uh, Pastor Kevin's sermon last week from Psalm 85, and as we continue to press into the Lord's Prayer the next few weeks. Uh, last week, you know, Pastor Kevin, we looked at the idea of revival from Psalm 85. Uh, Cars, we don't just want to be a church that sits and listens to sermons. We want to hear the Word and then do what the Word says. We want to double down in our efforts to devote ourselves to prayer. So starting this week, on Wednesdays, we're going to open up this space over here on the side of the stage. And we're just going to have an open time of prayer a couple times a day. We're going to pray for things like revival in our city. We'll pray the Lord's Prayer. We'll pray our own prayers. We'll ask God to act in all the ways that we need Him to act. 6.30 in the morning, if you're an early riser, 12 noon, if you take a lunch break then. You're invited. Your family's invited. Your neighbors, your coworkers, everyone's invited. We're just going to get together. We're going to pray. We're going to pray together. I'm sure we'll have more information popping up on social media and in the loop and stuff. Uh, but we'll pray with each other. We'll pray for God to hallow his name in our city, to reveal his honor, to reveal his glory, to magnify those things. Along with God's character, we have to pray. We have to pray with God's holiness in mind. Additionally, next, when we pray, we need to see God's sovereignty as central. Again, Jesus teaches us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. What else must we know about this God that we pray to? Well, that he's in heaven, ruling over all creation as absolutely sovereign. What does it mean for God to be sovereign? And why should we have that in mind when we pray? Well, God being sovereign means that He oversees and directs everything that goes on in our world. Nothing happens apart from His eternal will, desire, or plan. Psalm 115 puts it pretty plainly in verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. I'm sure next time I do a psalm sermon series. We'll unpack this whole song even more. But I don't know if I can put this more simply than the psalmist does. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. That's the sovereignty of God in a sentence. God's sovereignty means that nothing happens apart from what He directs or allows. And I know that can be a really complicated Doctrine, complicated thing that the scriptures tell us, especially when it comes to prayer. If God is sovereign, if the world runs according to his eternal will, why pray at all? It's a compelling question. It is. Here's what I'll tell you. From the very beginning of scripture all the way through its end, 
God's desire and sovereign will has been to work with people, his people, to accomplish his purposes. In every part of the Bible, we see examples of, God people, of God's people praying, working with, sometimes literally wrestling with, literally wrestling with, God and his will for the world. Abraham negotiates with God in prayer. Moses convinces God through prayer. Job accuses God in prayer. Paul begs God in prayer. Jesus pleads with his Father in prayer. The whole book of Psalms is the whole of God's people praising and petitioning and protesting with God through their prayers. And God certainly gives a variety of responses to each of those instances of prayer. One thing he never says is, would you guys just knock it off down there? Don't you know that I'm sovereign over this already? Bruce Waltke, who's a theologian, said, divine sovereignty does not nullify the need for prayer. It establishes it. For prayer is a part of the sovereign design. I'll take it one step further even. Our prayer is only worthwhile if God is sovereign. That question, or maybe even accusation, that prayer is worthless if God is sovereign, pales in comparison to the fact that our prayers would be utterly worthless if God was not sovereign. If he was powerless to work in our world or on behalf of his people. We pray to a God who is sovereign and able to act. That's why his sovereignty has to be central to our prayers. Then finally, first and foremost, when we pray, we have to start with God's fatherhood and focus. What is our relationship to this sovereign, holy God that we're praying to? We can talk about God's fatherhood in a couple of ways. It's common today, you know, to hear God referred to in the broadest sense that he's the father of all, the father of everything. Or it's common to hear all of humanity called God's children. We're all God's children. And in one sense, it is true. God has created everything and everyone who exists by the power of his will, and he sustains all of it. We might call this God's um, creational fatherhood. Yet at the same time, the Bible gives us a very clear distinction between this creational fatherhood and a more relational fatherhood for those who are followers of Jesus. We'll look at just a couple of passages real quick to give us an idea of that distinction. Ephesians 2, John chapter 8. In Ephesians 2, Paul tells the church, this is a group of Christians in Ephesus, he says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all, uh, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of, our bo of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. There's that distinction. You were once children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Jesus himself makes a similar contrast in John chapter 8 when he 
uh, is going back and forth with the religious leaders between those who do God's will and those who oppose him and his work. Let's read. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. You can get that contrast, that um, similarity of like character there. Those are harsh words. Sons of disobedience, children of wrath, your father, the devil. So while, yes, in the sense of creation and authority, God is indeed the father of all. For those who oppose or reject him, there's no functional or meaningful fatherly relationship to speak of. Contrast that to how Jesus opens his prayer. Our Father. Jesus almost exclusively speaks of God as Father. Though before him, it was actually uncommon for Jewish people to refer to God like that in prayer. Not just that, but Jesus allows his disciples, his followers, those who have put their trust in him, pledged their allegiance to him, to stay with him, our Father. He's extending an invitation into that special familial relationship that he's had with God for all eternity. What an honor. Again, I know we're going through a lot of verses. We see this in later stories of the Gospels. Like, when Jesus is raised from the dead, he tells Mary Magdalene, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. This sharing, this family, people being brought into that relationship. This language is also where we derive that beautiful doctrine of adoption that Paul talks about in his letter to the Galatians. Let's read that as well. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. And because you are sons and daughters, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Before receiving God's Spirit, we couldn't say to God, Abba, Father. We couldn't relate to Him in that way. It's something that God had to do to intervene in our lives, to send His Spirit into our hearts based on what Jesus had done for us. So if you're a follower of Jesus, then you're a daughter or a son of God. Not just creationally, but relationally. Church family, this is the most radical, most revolutionary opening to a prayer that we could pray. Our Father. God's fatherhood is right there at the heart of the gospel. God the Father, whose plan for all of eternity was to make for himself a family, to share 
and the sheer joy that he himself enjoyed for all eternity with his son and his spirit. Even though the family he made rebelled against him, he didn't give up on his plan because the plans of a sovereign God who rules in heaven can't be thwarted. He sent his eternal only begotten son, Jesus, the one who would one day be our older brother, to come and get us. He died on the cross, demonstrating in that one act God's true character. Not letting the sin that destroys our world go unpunished, but taking the punishment on himself on our behalf. Thereby opening all generations to come. Oh man, I love that song we were singing the last one, the new one. Stones just roll away. That was awesome. The stone rolls away, offering to all generations to come the mercy and the grace and the steadfast love and the faithfulness that uh, of the family that is that Holy Trinity. So that in a moment like the parable of the prodigal son, us, rebellious wanderers, appear on that horizon, our Father runs out to us. We're covered in mud and pig nastiness. He throws his arms around us, throws his nicest robe on us, hugs us, kisses us, forgives us. Karis, that is the gospel. And that's the heart in our intro into prayer. Let's pray. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. God, what more can we say than that this morning? You're our Father. It's a joy and it's a privilege to be members of your family. Father, before you rescued us, we didn't even know that we needed saving. Thank you for sending your Son to come after us, to chase us down with your grace. Father, you're also holy and you're sovereign. Those are big realities. But God, instead of being intimidated by those things, will we be able to rest in them, in you, because of them? Father, as we continue to worship this morning around your table, would you give us unity around your Son with each other by our Holy Spirit? Father, convict us of our sins. Bring us to repentance and faith. Uh, Father, we thank you for everything. But most of all, we thank you for Jesus and what he's done for us. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.